Today's reading is from the book of Ezekiel, chapters 36, verses 22 to 28. So the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 22 to 28. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I ask Lord that you would bless now, uh, bless us as we seek to understand your word, to apply it to our hearts. Holy Spirit, come upon me as I speak, Lord, that I might share what is true and right and pleasing in your sight. Speak to all of our hearts, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I first, Nikki and I first moved to Boston, we knew we were going to buy our first house. And one of the things we struggled with is that when we were looking at places, especially places we could actually afford, they were all incredibly old and it was like shockingly old. You know, I came from uh, San Francisco Bay Area where everything's relatively kind of new construction. I mean, you know, within reason you come here and you're like, oh my goodness, you look in these houses and there's all these like, you know, awkward houses with these tiny little rooms, these bizarre bathrooms, you know, things, you know, tiny staircases. I'm almost hitting my head as I'm going up them. And, and uh, you know, the kitchens were like, oh my goodness, you know, this is like something out of a movie. And I, I and, and one thing I knew about myself, I knew this was going to be a big problem because, you know, where you see when people just do these, you know, beautiful renovations and these these houses become, you know, radically new and wonderful. I knew that that big thing was always hard for me. I knew if I was in a house, I, you know, I'm I'm a cheapskate, you know, and I'm always trying to get out of everything as cheaply as possible, like fix me doing the minor, the smallest little fixes here, and the smallest little fixes there. And you realize all these little fixes when you're in one of these houses, just it becomes endless, right? Just one little problem. You're like, you know, putting your finger on one little leak, another one comes out, put on another one. When realizing the big job needs to be done. And it's not just dealing with houses. I mean, we see the same problem, you know, with companies or something. They realize that, you know, now we're moving to this next uh, era. They need to do a the big job, the big, you know, transformation and restructuring. And they find it's so hard to do, you know, it's so hard to do that big thing. You keep on doing little things, little things, little things. Now, why do I bring that up today? Well, in many ways, this promise in Ezekiel we're talking about 
is the big renovation. It is the big work. And, uh, and, and, and many times through the scriptures, what you see is God actually doing the small thing, trying to get Israel to trust him, trying to get Israel to follow him. Like last week, when we talked about the serpent in the wilderness. It was a, another method to try to get Israel to trust God as they would go into the land. And ultimately, all those things were failing. And this was the big work that he is promising, that big transformation that would really do something else. You know, in August, we're actually going through a number of these passages, which just show the way the script, really how amazing the scriptures are and how everything connects. And so we're looking at some of these passages, which you see connections from beginning all the way to end. And why is that so incredible? Because the Bible is one book, but it's actually not. It's 66 books written over 1,500 years by, you know, perhaps 40 different authors. And yet you look at it and go, wow, it's speaking the same thing again and again with these just almost concentric circles of, of meaning and power. And you go, wow, there's not 40 authors. There's one author, God. And so we're just kind of looking again at some of these things that show how amazing the connective nature of the scriptures are and how they, how God is revealing himself through it. So today we're looking at one of those when it talks about the nature of the new heart in Ezekiel. And we're going to first look at, you know, you know, what the promise is in Ezekiel and then go back. How does this thing track back in scripture? How do we get to this point? How is it connecting? And then how does it look going forward? And how does it inform and explain in some ways really bring to life exactly what the New Testament is talking about and what Jesus did in our lives. And then lastly, we'll ask, well, why does actually all of that matter so much to us? Because actually what it's doing is it's a giant revelation of what God is doing in our lives. So that's what we'll look at, you know, that, that passage in Ezekiel, how, you know, how it really brings together all of the Old Testament scriptures, how it points to the new, and how ultimately it connects to our lives today. So when we're in Ezekiel, again, now Ezekiel is uh, one of the major prophets. It's a really important book. It's a sizable book, but a book that oftentimes people don't read that much of because it is really hard to read sometimes. I've always found Ezekiel one of the toughest ones to get through. Um, but when you get towards him, it, it actually is utterly fascinating. And this is one of those really fascinating passages. It's a, he's an exilic prophet, which means he was pr uh, prophesying during the exile. He was actually a priest who was taken in exile to Babylon from Israel. And he's a contemporary of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was also preaching, but from Israel, he was not taken into exile. But they're preaching at the same time. And in many ways, the exile to Babylon was a sort of a type of final judgment. It wasn't the final, final judgment, but it was a, it was a type of it. And it was a, you know, a sense that God was working with Israel and working with Israel and working with Israel, and they just got harder and harder and harder and would not turn, would not turn. And finally, God took them out of the land. You know, basically, they were taken to the land of the promised land, and now he has removed them from the promised land. But he's not leading them. What's amazing, after that judgment, there's still a hope and a promise. And that's really what Ezekiel gets to now. He gets to this new promise. He says, I'm going I'm to eventually gather you bring you back to land, but then I'm going to do this amazing thing. And let's take a look at the nature of that promise that we're going to really talk about today of this promise. He says to Israel, I'm going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'm going to remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's an amazing, that is the amazing new promise 
that I'm actually going to put a new heart in you. And you can take that down now. And I want to talk about what does he mean by that, a new heart? And this is that huge reclamation project we're talking about. And what is that reclamation project? You know, he's not talking about heart transplant. He's not going to, you know, open up everyone's body and, you know, stick a new heart in each person. No, heart is, it's a metaphor. And uh, in the ancient world, you know, heart is not just uh, your emotions. You imagine that two people have, you know, if you have two folks, you look at their bodies, they're basically the same. What is it that makes you different from someone else? You know, physically, you're basically the same, but you're totally different people. In many ways, what makes you different is, in the, is in the ancient world, uh, is your heart. Your heart is uh, the place where you think it, you don't think in your brain, you think in your heart. That's where your mind is. You meditate in your heart. You're, you have a heart of wisdom, a heart of understanding. It's where your desires and the things you want mostly, the desires of your heart. You know, when you have a heart after God, it's your spiritual nature. You know, your heart you know, really encompasses all these different things, the things you hunger for, the things you want, the things you do, the things you think. Um, we often think about it in English as your emotions. And, that, and that, that's part of that piece of your heart, your emotions. But it's interesting in the scriptures, when they want to really speak specifically about your emotions, they often don't use your heart. They'll use like your kidneys, you know, or these other, you know, almost like your liver and kidneys, that different part of you. I don't know about you, but I don't find my kidneys, at least I don't think of my kidneys as terribly emotive. Maybe they are. You know, if I was thinking of emotions, parts of my body, I might say, well, you know, maybe your face, maybe your face really shows your emotions. It's interesting in the scriptures, your face is actually um, not so much your emotions, but how you encounter things, you know, and, uh, and what, how you face them in the presence of something. Like it talks about the, uh, the, the face of God, right? He put his face on us in a sense, like the presence of God comes upon us. We encounter God, we encounter his face. And uh, when it talks about the Messiah in this one place in Isaiah, when it's talking about Jesus says, when he's gonna suffer, it says he set his face like flint, like the hardest material, meaning he will not be pulled from that purposes. He can you know, take that march to the cross, you know, and suffer because his face is hard and he will not be turned aside as opposed to a soft face that is easily discouraged, easily offended, you know, easily turned aside from its purposes. Now, so where a hard face is a valuable thing, a hard heart is not a virtuous thing in scriptures. An impervious heart, a heart that's unwilling to change is a bad thing. You know, a Pharaoh famously hardened his heart and had a hardness of heart, meaning that he would not turn and release the Israelites. And it was plague after plague after plague, you know, and eventually all of Egypt is destroyed because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, his unwillingness to relent, his unwillingness to see what was before him and change what he was doing and change his ways. He would not do that. And that hardness of heart eventually led to destruction. So this, this heart becomes this critical place that, uh, as to who you are. And oftentimes the Bible would talk about good things and bad things. For instance, when there was a, a we talk about a final judgment, one of the earliest pictures of a final judgment happened in uh, with the flood. And way back in Genesis 6, it describes the heart of people prior to that. If we want to take a look at Genesis 6, it says, uh, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Take that down. And it says, and the heart, so 
their, their heart had become so wicked that all the thoughts and the meditations and everything that was going on was so bad there was no more hope for return. And so judgment came down upon them. And when God chooses Israel, what he's mostly wanting them to do is to change their hearts and to fill their hearts. And he says, God, Israel, what I want you to do is what we did in our call to worship today is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. That means all your desires, all things you think are important in life, all, all you know, your emotions, your thoughts, your meditations, your wisdom, Lord, all of that. Make it in loving and sacrifice to God. Let me have all of your heart. But as you walk through the, um, the scriptures, their hearts were not fully to God. They were not loving God with all of their hearts. There was perpetual problems. Uh, it's, it's interesting that the, the image they give of King Solomon, which is classic. In some ways, Solomon was a man with a heart of wisdom. He was, he was um, esteemed for it. But the way it describes his heart here, if we look at this verse, it says, Solomon, yeah, Solomon grew old, his wives, and when he was younger, right, he was all for the Lord, he, you know, he famously goes, God, you know, give me wisdom to rule this people, but as Solomon grew old, his wives, right, he had lots of wives, turned his heart after other gods, and then his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father had been, so David was wholehearted towards God, but Solomon had a divided heart. Part of him wanted to follow the Lord and part of it had run towards different things. And this was perpetually a problem for Israel. They're not, it's not just their kings, but their own hearts were running after it. And their hearts became you know, more than divided, but they became wicked. And ultimately what God had to do is God had to remove them and uh, bring them out of the land because their hearts had become so inability, you know, unable to be changed. Is that what God would do again and again? He would send prophets and exhort them. He would try to get them to trust him, you know, try to win their hearts back to him, you know, in various ways. But ultimately, he says, ultimately, we cannot. It won't work. Israel's hearts cannot turn again. Their heart has literally, as Ezekiel said, turned to stone. Now, one of the purposes of being thrown out to Israel, if we look at this verse there, as we read earlier, that Huzi read, is it says, I will show the holiness of my great name. That's a key aspect of what God's trying to do, which has been profaned among the nations. This is by a huge theme in Ezekiel. So everything's before the nations and among the nations. The name you have profaned among them. The nations will know, right? So it's all about what the nations know, that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. So again, again, everything is before the nations. It's a key idea in Ezekiel and a key idea in the scriptures. And the idea is if you want to understand the purposes of Israel, which is important here as we understand the heart, Israel was the means of revelation, right? God, God formed Israel, you know, from Abraham to be a way by which he was to reveal his purposes, his promises, his plans, his nature, his character, all through this people of Israel. And he would give them the law, for instance, and says all the other nations would then look and say, wow, what an amazing God you have. And the word would go forth from Israel, 12 people. They would learn what God is like. You know, he, he redeemed them from uh, Egypt. So we would go, wow, what an amazing God who is so close to you. And but what happens is now when Israel is no longer following God, they're, you know, they're, they're actually profaning the name of God before the nations. They're actually, by their nature and by their character, 
no longer showing what God is like, but actually showing the opposite. So what God did actually is he removed them and judged them. So they, that was actually part of the way of the revelation of God is that he would show that, wow, this is what happens to people. They're no, I'm showing you that they are no longer following me and they're not reflecting who I am. It was actually critical because if they kept them there, people would say, oh, well, the way Israel's behaving is reflecting what God is like. He says, no, for the holiness of my name, I have to remove you. But again, he's revealing himself and says, but the story's not over. Because again, I want to pull you back. Even after all the judgment, all the wickedness you've done, I'm again pulling you back and showing mercy upon you and giving a way by which I can restore you, which is again, revealing the way God is, his boundless mercy and, and everlasting uh, compassion and the way his promises cannot be thwarted that he made. And so he's pulling them back. But what he's going to do is do something else. This whole, by the way, this whole thing that was going to be done was all foretold in Deuteronomy, that eventually they would turn away from him, that he would judge them, and he would scatter them to the nations. But then he says, but then again, I will gather you again. But then I will change something radical. Let's look in that Deuteronomy verse, this incredible promise was after I've gathered you, the Lord your God will then circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul and live. The circumcision of the heart. So there's going to be this radical new thing that God's going to do. It didn't work that the hearts, you know, the hearts of the people when they were being exhorted just to follow him. They couldn't be. No matter how many times God tried to pull them back, no matter how many things he did to trust them, their hearts were flawed. He says, ultimately, I'm going to take you. I'm going to circumcise your hearts. I'm going to set apart them uh, to God so that you may be able to love me. So God's going to change something on the inside. And this promise in Deuteronomy then is exactly what Ezekiel is talking about now that he's going to do to the people of Israel. We take a look at the verse, he says, I'm going to now give you that new heart. I'm going to give you a new heart, right? Just the circumcised heart and put a new spirit in you. I'm going to remove from you your heart of stone and give you this heart of flesh. So that is that new idea. This is the big reclamation project, trying to work piecemeal with Israel's heart and get them to turn their hearts toward them and get them to love God is not working. So now this Deuteronomy promise if of this new circumcised heart. And he says that I will make you love me. But then look at the second part of this verse. If we look, you can look at the next slide. It says, I'm going to give you a new heart, but he also says, I'm going to put a new spirit in you. And I will put my spirit in you. And again, move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So there's this new heart combined with God's spirit coming inside of you, which is then going to actually move you and enable you, as it says in Deuteronomy, to enable you to love God and care for him, to follow his law. The spirit itself, that word is actually a metaphor also. It's the word there just for breath or wind. And uh, the idea is that wind and breath are things you can't see, right? Breath you can't see, but it is that which gives life to things. And wind is something you can't see, but it is powerful and it moves things. And they say that is the incredible analogy for what the spirit is in someone. You know, God's spirit, you can't see, but it is moving and it is powerful. Now, what the scriptures would say is throughout, you know, um, the time that God's spirit would selectively come on people and move them. You know, God's spirit would 
come upon a king, like, you know, King David, and suddenly he was empowered to be able to, you know, fight and uh, be able to face Samson. And it would come on prophets and they would speak from God. It would come on artists, like in the, uh, for the making of the law, you know, the, the spirit of God would come on and they would be skillful and able then to accomplish the building of the temple. In this, what the scriptures say then is part of this big promise of this new heart is he says, I'm going to actually pour out my spirit on all people, not selectively on the king, the prophet, the, the artist there. But, and, and it's a water analogy. That's be like the spirit of God will be dumped upon all these people. And that's what it's talking about with this, um, this promise from Ezekiel. Is this, this is part of the spirit of God being poured out. So it's not simply that God puts a new heart inside of you, a new heart of flesh. But God's spirit then comes inside and is able to move you and enable you then to follow him in a way that you could not do it. There was an empowerment now with the new covenant. And keep in mind, this is not that Israel has failed. This is all part of the revelation of Israel, that he's showing that people can't do it on their own. They can't simply be willed to follow God, that there's, there's a necessity for the spirit of God to come in to enable this new heart to do what you want to do. Your heart being your very, your motivation, your thoughts, your desires, for you to want the things that God wants, to love the things that he wants, to follow him. It's this new heart and needs to be guided by the spirit of God. And that's the promise in Ezekiel, that's gonna happen. There's gonna be a new heart and God's spirit coming inside to be able to move you. And he says, there's one further part of that promise. He says, I'm actually going to cleanse you, he says. Because the problem is, is that, right, you are defiled, right? You have profaned it. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. And sprinkling is very much imagery from the Torah. Like the sprinkling of water, the sprinkling of blood would cleanse something. And so again, it's this water analogy. This is, the, this is what the sovereign Lord says on the day I cleanse you from all your sins. So I'm going to take you. I'm going to remove this sin problem. I'm going to cleanse you of that. Then put a new heart, a new spirit. And it's really a return to the Garden of Eden there. right? You are like being recreated, remade heart of God. Remember God blew and put his spirit into the person and then they walked with God. So there's this radical idea we can go back to that. Now simultaneously in Jeremiah a similar promise is being made. Actually I think it's the same promise. It's different wording and the same thing. It's also called a new covenant and the covenant is also language which is used by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37 when again they're talking about the same huge promise of God. And in Jeremiah, it says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, the people of Judah. He says, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though as husband to them. So God was as close to them as they could be. He took them out. He gave them this covenant, but they couldn't, you know, they couldn't do it. They, could, they couldn't keep it. And again, this is revealing man's inability to do it. You know, just simply being called to follow him and they could never do it. So they broke it. And he says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. That's a, a parallelism there. God's law is no longer written on stone, but written on the heart itself, right? It's not on the outside, which you can see. It's now written on the inside. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Same language from that Ezekiel promise in 36. 
but it's a thing of intimacy. I will be intimately with them. I will be walking with them again, like in the Garden of Eden. Why? Because also I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So a key thing is they have, all their sins are now paid for and they are cleansed of their impurities. And I'm taking them again and recreating them by giving them their heart. And Ezekiel says, and the Holy Spirit coming to guide it, you know, the writing of it, essentially, the writing on the heart is, as Jeremiah says, Ezekiel's point, it's like the Spirit writing on the heart and moving you and enabling you to follow it. This is what the New Testament is talking about, is that what happened through Jesus. This is, this is the great promise. And you take this thing forward. You know, the idea in Acts 2 it says that is the, that, you know, he quotes Joel and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all people. And it is being poured out there. And what's amazing is the image then is the, of the law on Exodus 19 with the wind blowing in Acts chapter two and the fire you see, right? That's like on, that's the giving of the law on the top of uh, Mount Sinai. But then it says that fire comes down and splits apart and goes on people's heads. Meaning, you know, symbolizing that the, 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 the law of God is now being written on people's hearts. And the spirit of God is being poured upon them so that they could now you know, be able to follow them. They are having I mean, their literally their hearts circumcised. That is what, and it's not just, you know, Israel, it's gonna be, it's gonna be all people. And they even say at the end, they say, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized. And that there's a, that picture of that cleansing with water. You know, they are now clean because the idea is that because of what Jesus did on the cross, right? His death and resurrection, he's made a way by which they could be forgiven. I'll forgive the you know, sins of people in a single day, as it says in Ezekiel, and also in Zechariah. I'm gonna remember their sins no more, it says in Jeremiah, through that death and resurrection of Jesus, what he did on the cross. And therefore they're going into the water now to picture this cleansing of, as from Ezekiel. They are now cleansed of their sins and changed on the inside. This is this, radical new um again new creation is really the image they're kind of like a back to genesis 2 and they can have a relationship with god they can walk with god and their lives change and that's kind of what jesus um hits at at the end of john you know, after he died on the cross and rose from the dead and he sees the people he says with that jesus breathed on them and said receive the holy spirit which is right back to genesis 2 right the breath of god came on man they became a living being so that's the idea of this, this new creation that's now made possible through this new covenant. So we talk about ourselves, this is the gospel that's being preached. This is the promise that, that's being offered to people, you know, that, that he will take you, you know, turn to Jesus, you know, come, come to him and receive a new heart, you know, and uh, receive cleansing because of what he did on the cross and be made new with the spirit of God in you. You know, the very similar imagery you see, uh, as Jesus said, you must be born again, born spiritually. And he says, of water and spirit, which sounds just like Ezekiel. That is, there's this new life that happened inside of you. You know, I know when I turned to Jesus, something changed on the inside. I suddenly, I never cared about God before. And suddenly, that's what my heart is longing for, to know him, to follow him, to be changed by him. I suddenly saw the world differently. Something was transformed on the inside. You know, I think many times when people think about, um, you know, oh, it's being a Christian or just really being religious in any way, you always feel like the stuff you've got to do. And it's almost like this burdensome toil that's put on you that you have to live in this certain way. But in many ways, 
that is the very thing he was revealing that doesn't work throughout the Old Testament. That 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 methodology, you know, that, that Israel did that never works. Just simply trying to, you know, white knuckle it into following him will always fail. So God's saying the new thing is I'm going to circumcise you on the inside on your heart, and that's what's brought to us. That's what it means to you know be born again, to be changed. You begin to love the things he loves. He moves you to love him. Right? There's something on the inside of you that now longs to love him and longs to follow him. And that's what gets transformed about us. Now, you might say, as you say that, well, gosh, I'm, I, I, part of me says, yes, that change has happened. I know it, but part of me still fights it. And it does. We don't become robots when we come to Jesus. We don't suddenly like, automatically do everything God wants. No, we still are these free will creatures. But the other problem is, is that we're still in these broken bodies and in this broken world that the full promise of all that he's restored, that full restoration to Eden isn't there yet on the outside. So there's a part of you which is battling that now. But what's key about this is God has given us what we need to be able to follow him. That makes sense. You know, when we, when we go astray, you know, we can turn and receive cleansing fresh and new. We confess to him our need and our heart to change us. But again, we can, we, can, we can do what God has called us to. He's now empowered us to live that life for him. He's put that desire inside of us to connect with him, to know him, to follow him. But still a call to us now is to love him with all of our hearts because it's still a battle. That idea of the divided heart of Solomon, I feel like, man, that is such a temptation for us because part of us can be loving him with all of our hearts while there's a second part, which is, longing for things from the world that you know lives in fear and and uh what's wickedness goes on there or longs to get our you know satisfaction our fulfillment our meaning from other things the divided hearts and ultimately now we come before god we say god give me a whole heart i want to i want to love you with all of our hearts and all of my being and really that's what all of the scriptures again in some ways you talk about the fullness of scripture is the maintenance of our hearts so God has done something radical. When we come to Jesus, we are born again, born anew, given a new heart, and God's spirit comes upon us. And it says it enables us to follow him, to love him as we should. But yet, while we're in this broken world, it's hard. I want to close our sermon time today with that same prayer that uh, Andy read earlier, which so much talks about what we desire for God to do in our hearts. You know, if you look in the second line, you know, we say, well, you've granted us this rich and precious jewel, your holy word, assist us with your spirit, that the same word may be written in our hearts. We're, we're praying for that, Lord. Let that word really be written in our hearts. Why? So it might receive everlasting comfort, reform us, renew us, or to the image of God, to build us up, edify us into a perfect dwelling of Christ. And the second prayer, it says, oh, Lord, so draw our hearts to you. So guide our minds, so fill our imagination, so control our wills, and we be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you. Then use us, we pray, as you will. So this is sort of what we're longing for now, God. You've enabled us as we've come to you. You've said that this stuff is possible. And actually, I'm going to have us all pray together, so I want you to put it back up there, Otters, if you can. And I want us to make this our prayer as we close. So please, you can either, you know, Pray with your eyes closed and listen to me, or you can just pray it out loud with me. Well, let's make this the prayer of our hearts. 
gracious God and most merciful Father, you have granted us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. Assist us with your spirit, that the same word may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to your own image, to build us up and edify us into a perfect dwelling place of your Christ, sanctifying and increasing in us all heavenly virtues. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you, and then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people. And let us all say, in Jesus' name, 